this week, uh, Adam avoids spoiling inheritance. Sage Reductio Adam Sertum's Twilight Struggle for our 28th question. It's about time. So time. Time is our topic today. And we have so much of it. <laughs> actually, you know, that's that's actually kind of one of my points is uh, time. Like one of my favorite uses of time in role-playing games is time is like your enemy. Uh, time being something that's constrained. It's a resource. It's, it's what you're fighting against. Um, I was thinking through, actually, pretty much all of my favorite games do this to some degree, and the games that I tend to like less don't. So is this both in-game and out-of-game, or were you thinking primarily in-game? This is primarily in-game, but I'll get back to some of the kind of -of out-of-game stuff later. But uh, for in-game, I'm thinking of stuff here like... um, The Grind and Torchbearer. So Mm -hmm. Torchbearer, uh, for basically every turn, which is roughly an action or so, something is kind of short-circuit that, uh, you check off a a check mark on this kind of countdown clock, and every time it fills, everybody takes a condition that they don't already have. Um, And that means that the longer you go on adventuring, you're slowly wearing down. And there's lots of ways to recover these things, but like you're you're always fighting the clock, you're always, uh, it creates this great environment where going on an adventure really is like a a different mode. Um, I know the designers talked a lot about like being inspired by spelunking and, and actually going into dark places, dark frightening tough places where you're working kind of all the time just to get by um, and this is a great way of doing that and and it's based off of uh, older games that do the same thing but a little less directly I mean th- this is the same thing that you do with wandering monsters and uh, time tracking in in Moldvay for example uh, there you just have to do it a little more uh, meticulously. I, I kind of like the tech of it, of abstracting it out enough that I don't have to worry about like how many minutes you spent doing a thing. Instead, it's just kind of like the uh, okay, now it's time to to turn this down. Um, I was just playing Torchbearer on Twitch on uh, Wednesday, and uh, yeah, the the order of these things like we we managed to avoid getting conditions before a big fight because I used a spell and spells never co- uh, advance the the grind. Oh, nice. So then we got into this big fight. And men come out great, and after it, we immediately ticked the grind. Um, but because of how we did things, like we, we stacked effects in such a way, like there, there was this great uh, gaming thing to it, where it really is kind of a game optimization thing. Of okay, if we if we get this fight in before the grind, and then we immediately uh, drink to get rid of our thirsty condition, and then the grind hits, and we get it again, like we're actually in a pretty good state. And yeah, it was uh, it's a lot of fun. And Apocalypse World, Countdown Clocks, uh, Blades and Dark. Also, um, Grimportance in, in Dungeon World, like all these things that make time into to something that you think about as an enemy of the players, I, I just love it. It makes so many games uh, work so well. It's really interesting. Like, uh, roguelikes do this uh, and, mm-hmm. and have done this for a very long time with the food clock. And I've always thought of the food clock as this really interesting way to force people away from, I'm just going to kind of grind XP and items in this one location and the game says well you're you're out of food so you need to move it or lose it yep. and and that's that means that you see more game it means that you're inexorably pushed forward uh it always bothered me a little bit in roguelikes, but I think it's supposed to. Yeah. So it's totally doing its job. The first time I ever played Gauntlet as a kid, I was super annoyed by, like, needing food badly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was so annoying to me. 
And now looking back, I think I just I, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Right. I had an entirely different idea of what that game was. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it's really bad if you're not expecting it. Um, but when I think of games that, that don't have this, that, like, when we played 3rd uh, Edition, um, back when that was the current edition, uh, we were never that, that close on all this time-tracking stuff, and it made a lot of dungeons and, and adventures in general kind of uh, they, they were it was easy to fall flat mm-hmm. it wasn't always going to happen but without like wandering monsters and and carefully tracking consumables in time so that like you have to manage this stuff dungeons kind of become like a, a pretty rote exercise of like doing everything checking the door etc etc going through like you're you're never intention of well the it, do we really want to risk that a monster is going to show up just so that we can make sure that there's not a monster on the other side of the door? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you're, you're always in that tension. Um, and especially, like, when this is at, like, a, a micro level. Um, last time we talked a little bit about the Tomb of Annihilation, which has kind of a, a meta countdown clock. Um, and the further up you push that, I think the the less a fan of it I am in some ways. I mean, this applies to Apocalypse World and Dungeon World's countdowns as well. Like, they, they can be so high up that that feeling of time can be too abstracted away. Um, like it, I think it helps when your time decisions are very clear and immediate, not kind of a big picture uh, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a plot question too, right? Because uh, a lot of the uh, writing books that I've read talk about plot as this force pushing the story forward. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these, all these time mechanisms are really that kind of, you know, a way to mechanize plot like you don't have to say this is the force this is the explicit force that's pushing you forward mm-hmm. but there are all these well here's like four or five fronts and if you don't do anything well cool the world's world's going to keep moving if you don't do anything you're going to die of hunger if you don't do anything you're going to so you better you better do something which means that you get to provide the plot, but I've got to push the yeah. pressure. It, it's like when we talked about balance a few mm-hmm. episodes ago. Uh, like having a time pressure, micro or macro, is a way of making sure that everything's always out of balance. That you can't just sit there and say, well, well, we don't go on the adventure um, because not going on the adventure is still a choice. Uh, it, it's the, the old saying about um, politics in pretty much any arena where uh, saying that something shouldn't be political is a political stance itself and like if you can turn choices, uh, player choices into the same thing where not making a choice is a choice mm-hmm. then you've created a game with momentum and it's dynamic and everything and so I love having these games that make time your your enemy um, or at least not your friend I mean it's not always your enemy but it's, it's uh, a force that'll throw you out of whack at the very least definitely yeah, one of the things, so my first major game piece, Blades in the Dark, mm-hmm. uh, deals with time in all sorts of really interesting ways in the game to help you save time outside the game as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you've got the countdown clocks like we were talking about where uh, he says explicitly, please put these on the table so that everybody also is getting that kind of uh, just you know, plot and background by osmosis in a way. Yeah. But then you've also got stuff like flashbacks and engagement roles where instead of spending an hour doing this, you know, deep planning session, let's jump into interesting stuff and then you can flashback if you had some sweet idea that actually is going to matter in play. Yeah. Like, feel free to think about it, but you don't have to argue over it because there's no downside to, to just jumping right in. And both of those save enormous amounts of out-of-game time and 
also make the in-game time move way faster yeah. because suddenly you're jumping from from scene to scene uh, without having to worry, did we cover everything? Did everybody do the stuff they wanted to do? Did you go to the tavern like you said? Like, no yeah. worries. If it matters, it'll come up. It'll right? come up. Yep. Uh, anything that saves time at the table, I'm, I'm generally a huge fan of. Um, I, I'll have to return to this a little bit later because it's kind of one of my points. But oh, uh, nice. the... Uh, Anything like that, um, and I actually think that that Torchbearer does this with um, by making your your town phase basically. You can only do so many things when you return to town, and the number is based on what things have happened on your adventure. Um, but because of that, it it we cut away a whole bunch of the kind of like oh we you know find an inn. How much does it cost? I tell the innkeeper oh, like. That's abstract that stuff scene. away, yeah. yeah. Totally. Uh, and and if there's something that matters there, that can be one of your scenes that you get through the, this resource economy of how many scenes you get. Right. But you've basically decided, like, only the the game has decided based on your choices mm-hmm. how many important things happen while you're in town. Yeah, Blades cuts it down to two actions per downtime unless yep. you're at war. Yeah. Uh, the unless you're at war part very important. Yeah. Uh, considering my group almost got into a war in their first session. Oh. Uh, oh, they're playing on tough mode. Well, they they were like, well, why should we pay these people? Let's just start at negative two with like three or four <laughs> actions. And I'm like, sounds, sounds good, guys. Have fun. Yeah, yeah so they're going to figure that out. Um, but, yeah, so... A lot of all of my answers today are things that do weird things with time in the game to either save you time or manipulate what time you can use outside of game. Uh, so, like, you know, I've got n- not on my list. Kind of bonus items are are even the Creechbill episode type of stuff that we did the other mm-hmm. day, and working out how to make it so that everybody can respond at their leisure mm-hmm. without making the game take ages and ages and ages, right? Yep. And that kind of time, especially anything where you're where you're playing asynchronously has this really weird hiccupy time thing going on where one person is on a cycle of like a day and somebody else is on a cycle of two days and that first person's going to be just really sad about the entire endeavor, yeah. right? Yeah, and uh, something that we mentioned in Creekspiel that goes back to this usage of time is uh, subterfuge, mm-hmm. uh, which played another game of recently, uh, which is a, a computer-mediated uh, diplomacy-ish kind of game. It, it's the same kind of, like, there's... Uh, actually, I guess there's more hidden information than diplomacy, but it, it's largely about your ability to um, convince people that you are actually doing what you said you did while maybe not doing it. Uh, but it all plays out in real time with, like, your subs. Like, you, you have all these islands, I guess they are, and you launch your subs and you get a real-time, you know, okay, this is going to launch in 10 minutes and then it'll take, you know, 12 hours to get to its destination. Mm-hmm. And based on everything you see, you can advance the clock and see what it'll look like then, but there, you only have so much radar range and everything beyond that, you have no idea what's happening. So it's this, uh, like that management of time, like any time that you turn time into something that everybody thinks about, yeah. uh, it... it it immediately gets people involved. So that, that's the Blades of the Dark thing as well. Like you said, yep. put it on the table. Like once it has to be in the open. Yeah. Um, time time is time is crazy. And speaking of crazy, microscope. Uh, <laughs> is that your your second I can't do a time episode. Yeah, that's my second without okay. talking about microscope. Microscope, of course. Uh, I've got the Explorer book and I my big thing here is the kind of stuff out of the Explorer book because microscope is this really weird fractal game about uh, large histories 
but you can play small pieces of those large histories. Mm-hmm. And similar to Blade's flashbacks, you only deal with stuff that's actually interesting. Yep. So, you know, we put this little piece on the board that says, oh, yeah, uh, at this point, Atlantis sinks into the sea. And it's like, well, you know, what happened to cause that? Well, it's not going to matter unless somebody makes it matter. So if you're mm-hmm. not interested, who cares? And if you are interested, you can dig as deep as you want. The crazy thing about Microscope is how long it actually takes to play, yeah. uh, and especially the opening part. If you don't come to the game with something that everybody is just really interested in, in rocking, a lot of the individual player turns can take a long time as people go, well, I'm not entirely sure what I want to contribute. And so the Explorer book actually creates a whole bunch of like random seed prompt type things mm-hmm. that just move you into that initial starting scenario way faster. Yeah. And so instead of spending 15, 20 minutes kind of working out, okay, wait, what exactly do we want to bookend? Yep. You can just jump immediately into something. That actually has always been my problem with Microscope is that the the time to play it has never, usually by the time that we've, we've gone around and done our first round of like the actual kind of play stuff, the actual adding of events, mm-hmm. I'm like done with it. Uh, but between the setup and then how long it can take to go around. Um, I've, I've always meant to go back to it with like a, a more constrained setup, probably based on some fictional thing that everybody already knows. Mm-hmm. Like take uh, the the existing Star Wars movies as your bookends, basically, and sure. rewrite everything between um, uh, Phantom Menace and uh, um, Force Awakens, like because those are our current endpoints, sure. uh, and just like tell them that you know you have to start with. Uh, there are no known Sith, and uh, get to like the the Jedi are rediscovered after being eliminated, and fill in everything between there however you want. Um, I think yeah, I think there's there's a bunch of things about there's a bunch of things ideas here about trying to make sure that everybody's kind of on the same page as quickly as possible. Yeah, uh, which I won't dive into too much because it definitely hits on my number three. Um, <laughs> But, but Explorer also provides a couple of different game modes that re-examine this idea of what if you remove time as a factor, as a, as a one-dimensional, always-moving-forward thing in game. Mm-hmm. Like, Blades does this a bit with flashbacks, right? But most of the time, at least when I'm running a game, we do something, and then after that, we do the thing that happens after that. And yep. then after that, we do the thing that happens after that. And it's like, we are moving in normal time from scene to scene. We're not like momentum-style backwards, momentum-style backwards mm-hmm. uh, play or anything like that. But you could definitely, you're not restricted to playing that way because, I mean, it's it's a game and it's a human con- construct. So there's, there's a microscope explorer game that's uh, exploring a family tree. Uh-huh. But you don't explore it in order or yep. anything like that. And there's there's a couple of other ones as well. But it's like kind of pulling time out of always moving forward is a really cool DM technique that doesn't necessarily have to stay in this game, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Flashbacks in general. I, I love that um, Blades in the Dark like, canonicalizes them and, and tells you they're a thing. But like that's something that... Um, Playing with John, uh, like he, he's part of my my most normal gaming group. I mean, we don't meet that regularly these days because we all have kids. But like our our former very very regular gaming group and flashbacks were were pretty much part of the course. Like we we didn't really stress about that. Even if the game didn't say so, we'd just say, "Oh, okay, let's let's jump back to that." And Blades in the Dark just uh, telling you like this is part of the game. 
helps get everybody on the same page. Uh, that actually is kind of a pet peeve of mine right now. Um, games that take that that are better with something that's not directly in the book, but the author will say, like, oh, go read this other game and use these great things from it, but not... But you haven't put them in your book. You haven't put them in your book, and you haven't even said in the book, like, go check out this game. Like, uh, I, I really appreciate the the guys doing D&D now, um, and they're turning out great stuff, but somebody asked Mike Morales on Twitter, like, hey, with Tomb of Annihilation, how do you manage all this, like stuff that's that's happening, the, the big plots, and making sure that people feel pressure. And he's like, on Twitter, he replies with, oh, go check out Fronts from Dungeon World. And <laughs> like, like, why didn't you put that in the book? Yeah, like, and obviously, I'm especially biased on that one. Sure. And, but, like, it's a Creative Commons game. All you would have had to do was was say, like, give it, and of course, like, there's big bureaucratic things. I'm sure that Mike, as a person, would, would totally do that, but, like, there's reasons that Watsi won't. But it, it just drives me crazy when uh, something that really works for a given kind of game or genre gets left out um, because it's viewed as more of a, a table skill as opposed to a part of the game. I mean, we've we've talked about this kind of meta... I, I'm sure we have. If we haven't, we should. Uh, I talked about this kind of meta... There is the crunchy rules that are about what your character can do at any given time. And then there's all of these kind of uh, scare quotes, soft skills Mm -hmm. that the DM and the players need to actually move through the game moment to moment. And books have historically been pretty bad on the second one. And it's only gotten better, oh, I guess... In the past 17 years, it's gotten, it's gotten much better. Well, and there's a, a tough thing there that some of those soft skills are so transferable that, right. like, I also, in some ways, don't want every game to, to remind me of them over and over again. Um, well, but if it's your first book. I know, that's the tough thing. Like, the, the RPGs are always set up for failure as books because there's no, like, reading order. Like, you can't assume that everybody's already read uh, any other given book. Mm-hmm. Um, like, speaking of time, uh, there's a legacy game called Charterstone coming out that's legacy being uh, a board game that you put stickers on and slowly destroy over time Uh, and at the end of Charterstones I think it's 12 16 games or whatever you can flip the board over get new components play again or you can continue playing on the same side and I've it's really easy to say well you know after you played 16 games like I, how many games do I have that I play 16 times? Yeah. But if Charterstone is the only game you get all year, yep. and you can play it X times, and then either you have to buy an expansion pack or you're just done with it, that's a horrible experience. And so even if the game isn't as amazing at the end, at least you can keep going. And I think that remembering that there are people who... This is this is, their experience with this game is going to be very different from your common gaming experience. Yeah. is important, and I think, I think that even if I really would have appreciated D and D five including stuff like fronts mm-hmm. in the core book, you know, in the DMG or something, and their take on it, not just because oh well I've seen fronts so I can just skip this chapter like it, not just because it's a zero cost for me but also because somebody else's take on that kind of idea is just another facet right yeah. um, like uh, the way that you know, I, I'm playing a lot of blades can you tell the way that blades deals with fronts as much more of a vague just draw a couple clocks and just kind of have a general idea of what's going on as opposed to Dungeon World's like hardcore mm-hmm. you have an exact idea what the next thing is going to happen fronts those two are very different ways of handling the same kind of background 
yeah. process, right? I have an interest in it. You had to go somewhere in the middle of that that someday I will get around to actually releasing a game that includes. But uh, it, it hybridizes um, kind of a, a front-type idea and uh, the bullet journal method of writing a journal into a, a lightweight roll-forward, uh, always-have-that-kind-of-momentum thing without so much of the upfront work. And while keeping... I, I found that note-taking is huge, keeping me involved in games in the moment. Yeah, totally. Um, like, anyway, like that's, that's this fun intersection of time and awareness of time and rolling forward time and mm-hmm. all these skills. Um, and I think your point about different people looking for different things, that, that's huge along a lot of dimensions, not just, I think we tend to focus on the the things that people want, but also things like um, cost constraints. Like, yeah. you and I buy a lot of games, um, you, you even more so than I. Uh, <laughs> but, like, you know, if uh, we were playing Seafall yesterday, like, if Seafall was the only game I bought for a year... I would be really bummed if I could only play a set number of times and then it was completely done and I was anticipating this being like, like, like break it out every night with my game group for an entire year. Yeah, even every week. That's 52 games, which yeah. is way more than most than any legacy game supports. Yeah. And, and so, like, for us, things like uh, cost, like, our, we're, we're a little skewed on cost. We put a lot of money into gaming and we get to do that. And then there's also, like, just... Uh, Perspective. I I was amazed there was a thread in email here at work with with just random people on like a D and D discussion list, mm-hmm. um, where people uh, were were making a work related joke about becoming level five and getting fireball or something like that, and it led into this really deep like discussion of in different editions whether you'd take haste or fireball <laughs> as like the better spell, and. I mean, hopefully this is self-evident because I'm, I'm doing a podcast about role-playing games, but I care a lot about role-playing games. I could not care less about that choice. I was like, and they were discussing different editions and like, you know, the real game in third edition is extra actions and like, I, I, yeah. Um, but this is, this is the kind of, you know, the chess version of RPGs, right? Yeah. The, uh, I'm going to play this RPG to win it. And yep. that entire subculture. It, it's just amazing to me how big that subculture is. I think mm-hmm. it's really easy, uh, you know, when we talk about games and what they explain, to assume that a lot of people are coming from the, the same perspective as us. Um, and, you know, we some books work really well for us as people who read and play a whole lot of games across a huge spectrum. Yeah, totally. And other things work a lot better for other people. Like, uh, in some ways, D&D is still a better introduction to some things because it... Uh, I think even with with fifth, um, they focus first on the mechanical rules, and the fact that they don't push too many of those soft skills um, means that maybe you don't jump as directly into the game. But it also means that you start off with these things that you that seem really f- relatively familiar, kind of whatever direction you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Like you probably have already seen like a board game or a computer game that does similar things with like hit points and turns and stuff and so by focusing there in some ways it makes it a better introduction not not much better but yeah yeah i don't know like coming back on the back on the 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 subject that we've got about time like coming from board games and war games which is how i got to dnd in the first place uh because dnd didn't have anything that kind of shook me out of those habits uh my time was very much well okay rounds are six seconds right and so I have to do this and then I have to do this and then even after you get out of combat we have to do this and then this and then this and I okay I have to do that tavern scene where we discuss with the person you know how much the thing at the end is going to cost and then we have to we have to play these boring scenes because that's how we get to this other thing Um, and I 
I feel like maybe you could have a nice soft lead into that kind of stuff. Totally. It, because it's the really awesome thing about RPGs that you can skip the boring stuff, mm-hmm. I, I feel like it's a really important thing. And it saves a lot of p- time. Yeah, you know, it when does. You're reading and trying to figure out how you're supposed to do this thing. And um, it, uh, to save time on reading, I think the, the structure of books being the kind of... Um, broad description, more detailed description is really important because yeah, for, totally. for people like you and I, when we see certain sections, depending on like what purpose I'm reading the book for, I may, be, I may skip certain things if like it has a pretty solid description of what's going to be in this section and I feel like I already get it. I may just skip it. Like Depending on the game and depending on the exact reason I'm reading it. Um, RPGs tend to be much less brittle than board games. Yeah. Uh, war games, war games are, are pretty brittle, but not as much as like the elegant, tiny jewel of a Euro game where yeah. you miss one rule and the whole game is just completely destroyed. Yep. But, you know, I could pick up Dread, understand the core concepts of it, and it will work pretty well, even if I'm not playing everything precisely yep. right. I mean, I, so I mentioned the Torchbearer game that we're streaming. Um, I had done another Torchbearer game this online is the with Keep some on friends. The Borderlands yeah, Keep on the Borderlands. Okay. Yeah, uh, so yeah, it's the Keep on the Borderlands adventure from from the basic Moldvay box uh, mm-hmm. with Torchbearer, and it's great. I loved it. I got almost enough uh, Fate and Persona in my first session to level up. Once I use them all, yeah, I, I I'm the human wizard, and it's amazing. Um, awesome. I'll try to make sure there's a, a link in the the show notes because um, sure. this will be out before for our next session, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, it's great. But the thing we we get into. Um, our first conflict and it's a drama conflict and uh, somebody mentions oh yeah um, because you're using a lantern one of you is in dim light and like we start going into that and I realized I'd read that rule when I first looked at Torchbearer mm-hmm. I've run at least two or no I've played in one and run one game since then, that we never use the light rules because I totally forgot they were even a thing. <laughs> uh, like, and the, this makes me really ashamed because, uh, yeah, like when we started playing Torchbearer, um, Eric, the guy who's running it, is like, "Oh, we're gonna look to Sage for a lot of answers because, I mean, I published Super Burning Wheel HQ and I know Luke and Tor, I guess. But uh, anyway, like they they were, you know, Sage must know everything, and then I'm like, oh, light, oh, yeah, that's totally a rule of this game. I mean, you're swimming in it, right? Yeah. <laughs> what's what's your what's your number two? Uh, my number two is, uh, I phrased it just to make it uh, an inverse of number one, but time is your friend. Um, sure. And this is games where a time constraint, especially a real-world time constraint, actually makes the game way better. Um, so the the kind of most common examples of this, I would say, are things like um, con sessions and, and this Twitch game, yeah. where like when you have a set schedule and that leads you to um, really know where kind of your beginning, middle, and end are, even without... Um, like pulling strings to make things happen, you kind of automatically fall into a uh, this must be the end. Like we, we got into that conflict at the end of our yeah, um, totally. our session, and I think if we would have, so we were playing for for basically three hours. Um, if it would have been like a four hour game, we wouldn't have thought of that as the end, and it probably would have played out the exact same, and it would have been fine. But since we knew, like, oh, we stop at this time, this became this kind of like conclusion to the session thing. And and once you have a time constraint, um, certain things become 
like more interesting and you, you drive sort towards certain things, especially if you have a short time constraint, mm-hmm. uh, like con games where you cut out some some elements just so you get straight into a game are, are actually kind of great for that. I um, mean, this even goes further into games where that time constraint is a real constraint on play. Um, there's a game that, unfortunately, I could not find the ni- name of. I will try to find it for these show notes. I've only heard of it through John Harper and never played. Um, it's this game where you are, uh, I forget whether it's toys or puppets. I thought it was toys and I tried Googling for it. I couldn't find it. Um, who come alive each night um, oh, for like a certain amount of time, but your session is that amount of time. I believe it's one hour. Mm-hmm. So you you play the game in strict one hour sessions, and the one hour like wall clock time is how long you have. Right. And uh, John's told me these stories many times, and I've always kind of wanted to play because it sounds amazing. Like you, he's described them as some of the most intense role playing sessions that he's had in the sense of you have to get everything done in one hour. Like, right. you have, you know you're, uh, you can't even do the kind of um, metagamey thing of, like, sure, we have this countdown clock, but we'll, we'll take our time describing what happens. You're like, no, get get to the details, drive it, drive it, drive it, get things done. Um, and there's other games that do this, like uh, the um, Zombie 15 Minutes is a, a board game where uh, you play with a soundtrack. The soundtrack has like zombie growls in it. Whenever that happens, zombies appear on the board. And if the time track runs out, you lose. Mm-hmm. But if you haven't reached your goal, and there's these different scenarios, et cetera, et cetera. But like that kind of um, a, a strict time constraint can actually be huge for that uh, oh, to yeah. like drive play and give you like a framework for understanding where you are in a session. Um, it, it, I think it's actually really great to put a time cap on like this. We we stop at this time, um, and sure, let a little spillover. Our torchbearer session went long and everything, but yeah. it, it's a huge help for an arc. Like when I was younger, I used to do uh, long form musical improv, mm-hmm. and when you're doing that kind of thing, it really helps to say, okay, here's when I'm starting. Here's how long I want to play, which means that I need to be. I need to be reaching this moment in kind of the emotional feel of this piece mm-hmm. at this time, and I need to be coming down to close about this time. I need to be changing themes about here and here. I should revisit a previous... Like, all of these pieces that, as humans, we know about how stories are supposed to work mm-hmm. are much easier if you know, I have two hours, which means I better be on the almost to the climax by an hour and 15, or I am not going to have time to actually bring it to a satisfying close, uh, something the Hobbit's movies have not been able to figure oh, out. Jeez. Uh, but and And, like, that's one of the reasons why uh, Dungeon World con games are my favorite ones to run, mm-hmm. because I say, okay, I've got four hours, and this is a totally new group, so I need to teach them and give them sheets and get them playing, and then... Ignore some of this stuff so that I can move to this part, and then, okay, let's fill in some of those stuff because we have a downtime, which leads us into this part, and, oh, we have an hour left, which means I need to do this. And, and see, I like that even when it I don't keep it as consciously in mind. Like, if um, kind of what I was talking about with the Torchbearer session, if you know that there's an ending time, you you add uh, meaning to things that would have happened yeah, either, totally. any, any way. You don't have to, like, know, okay, now I've got to make the climactic event happen, if you look at your clock and you have, like, 45 minutes to half an hour left, you're like, well, I guess this is, like, the big thing. And, and maybe that leads you to, to change your mind a little bit and, you know, pull in an extra monster or whatever. But uh, no matter what, you know 
how to think about these events. Yeah, totally. Um, and, and making that time as a resource thing, like uh, Monster Hearts actually does this, or sorry, Monster Hearts 1. I actually still haven't read Monster Hearts 2, but I, I, I will, because <laughs> I talk about it enough. Um, and I, I think this is probably carried over. Uh, once somebody takes one of the um, advanced advancements, basically, the adult things, um, that indicates that your season's almost over. Which is really great, because it means that you have, like, you know that things are going to come to a, as much of a close as they're going to, basically. And it gives you these clear kind of arcs. Um, and they're, they're clear arcs that you didn't force, per se. You didn't, like, get to this point and say, like, well, now we have to have an ending. You just know, like, well, we only have one more session left, so whatever happens in this will be our ending. Like, you, you don't make everything happen. You just kind of let it flow. And... Uh, I think I've told this story before. Like when when we played Monster Hearts, I then went on to like tell people what had happened in our games, and they're like, "Oh wow, you guys must have played for for quite a while." I was like, "No, that was that was three, four sessions, something like that." <laughs> I think uh, that same group is actually going to return to that later this year um, and do nice. Monster Hearts again as a prequel to our previous game. Uh, we we had a game set in. Um, S- Superstition Falls or something like that, Arizona. Um, it's an actual place, uh, and it, it was great awesome game and now we're going to go back and maybe do I think it might be like happy days almost like uh, kind of go with a, a classic you know teenagers in cars driving down the main street cruising kind of thing mm-hmm. um, but yeah it's it's wonderful and I love that Monster Hearts with that time constraint actually draws you into to making things happen totally. and from there I'll go into my my final well, point me, oh okay we're going to alternate go for it well because because it's this thing, right? Uh, Inheritance is my third. Uh. Uh, because A, we got to play it, and I really, really want to talk about it just at all. Uh, but B, because it has this entire real-time thing. Like, games where you're actually doing the stuff that your character is doing mm-hmm. just mean that everything is happening in real-time except for scene transitions. Yep. And Inheritance has, like three very explicit scene transitions and everything else is basically real time. Yeah, so so let's stop and mention what Inheritance is yeah, yeah, just yeah, totally. to, to set this up. because uh, So Inheritance is from um, Burning Wheel, Lucrane. Uh, it's a... I've heard that we're not supposed to use the word LARP, but I, I it, it is a... Um, role-playing activity where you uh, actively portray your person and move as your person and speak as your person and don't do a whole lot out of character that's not as your person. There there is maybe one or two what normal gamers would call mechanics in the game. Yeah. And everything else is, well, if you want to convince them, you better just convince them. That's that's it. But it's a a specific setup that um, actually reminds me in a lot of ways of like diplomacy or something where there's uh, an unequal situation of different people having strengths and weaknesses and the only way to have a real shot at getting what you want is to make alliances, but there's no, uh, you know, that's not a a mechanical thing. They have no guarantee that you'll do what you said. Um, There's, it's a beautiful game. It plays out over a set number of scenes um, and there's actually, I was going to mention the time management in there of, um, it's a, a Viking funeral basically and the it the game covers the length of these funeral proceedings and one element of that is a feast where the hostess gets to um, say that the feast is over before then nobody can leave the table and then say it's time for bed and everybody has to go to bed they have to stop talking and go to bed she's also in control of the first scene by the way. yes actually she is in control there but it's um, 
the cutoff there is a little less important. Uh, so the big thing is in the, the feast scene, the time between dinner ending and uh, everybody going to bed is a wonderful time to scheme because you can go off in twos and threes and there are whole, aren't a whole lot of other times in the game where people can split up in this way. Sure. So it's uh, And scheming benefits some characters more than others because of how direct your character can be and what they want and their position within this situation. Um, so when we played, the hostess, uh, things were not going well at dinner and the hostess just was like, straight to bed, everybody. Um, and part of that was actually a rules misunderstanding. I, I helped clarify it and she still wanted to stick with that. She was like, nope, uh, nobody yeah, that sounds fine. Nobody, everybody's at each other's throats. Just get it over with. Um, which meant that our game didn't have any, uh, didn't have nearly as much kind of one-on-one scheming. There were a few whispers here and there, but you couldn't get that like, okay, you have free time kind of right. thing to really make plans. Which um, actually made it a little less bloodless because you couldn't have as many hidden arrangements. Like you, you avoided kind of the World War One like uh, series of entanglements, uh, and instead everybody had to be very open about what they wanted, and so we had a minimum of bloodshed. It was actually pretty impressive. Well, yeah. So, so we also had a, a relatively strict timeline because we were playing a little later in the day. Uh, and we had people who had to leave relatively relatively soon. And so we were trying to make sure that everything moved, and there were moments in any game where you're actually playing kind of yourself, uh, you have these parts where you want to be paying attention to this thing going on over there, but uh, if you were playing to uh, kind of do what your character really should be doing, you need to be doing something over here instead, which means you're going to totally miss that thing. Mm-hmm. And so we certainly had a bunch of moments. We had some moments at the bonfire. We had uh, some things at the table where, really, this group should have gone off into a two or a three, but they couldn't stop watching the car crash that was going on as yep. the character who shall not be named approaches the bonfire. Uh, I mean, that, that's a minimal spoiler there. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. But aside, I, I do think it's very replayable for for people that are that are asking about this kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, so it's it's just this crazy kind of idea that uh, if you know that the game is ending, if you know that the scene is ending, if you know that your time that you could do this thing that you've been planning all night is running out very, very quickly, that causes all sorts of things to happen. Yeah. But yeah, so that I feel like that piggybacks directly on top of your two. So go go ahead into your three. Well, and actually, sorry, I wanted to mention yeah, time-wise, yeah. time um, I've recently finally got hooked on Stardew Valley, uh, where time there actually has a really interesting effect in this. Um, it is still a resource. Like, days are a certain amount of time long, and if you don't get to bed, you just fall asleep randomly and get transported home. Um, and then you have energy, which is how much you can do during the day, and only some things cost energy. But it actually creates this uh, really kind of chill game, because there's also... Like, each day, you can only do so much, but you've got pretty much an unlimited supply of days, and, like, there's... It's pretty hard to really lose at the game. Like, you can't, like, starve and get a game over or something. It's it's not don't starve, it's won't starve. Like, um, and so you, the, the time limitation there, actually, instead of creating, like, a lot of tension, it still drives play, but it creates this really chill play of just kind of like, oh, today it rained, so I guess I'm going to go into the mines because I don't have to water my plants. Like, it's... Uh, Having time as that resource and control of time, kind of like Fulla in the Inheritance, mm-hmm. like once time is a resource that you you can manipulate, manipulate yeah. it, it leads to all kinds of things. So my, my final point is about um, 
metagame, you know, uh, in our practice of role playing games, time as a compromise. Mm -hmm. uh, so this also applies actually within games. Um, so time as a compromise within games. I'm thinking of stuff like where you um, fail a role in, say. Apocalypse world, and the outcome is it takes longer than you thought, which gets you into trouble. Um, like this is a really interesting outcome of tracking time less directly, is that then you can use oh this took longer as uh, a side effect or uh, a modifier on a roll to cause interesting things to happen. Um, but that also, I think the the bigger and more interesting part is expanding that out to our actual like design and practice of role playing games, mm -hmm. uh, games that take. I, I kind of made up percentages here, but like a game that takes like 10% of the time, especially as prep, but has like 90% of the fun is going to be a good trade-off for a lot of people. Yeah, totally. Um, and I think like Dungeon World is actually a pretty good example of this. Like you're not going to get quite some of the same like nitty gritty advancement uh, and th wonderful feelings of like managing to make it from one to three in, in Moldvay or something like that. But you're going to just kind of jump into it and get a lot more done per session. And, like, if, depending on your particular time trade-offs, um, and I think for both you and I as parents, we've become very sensitive to the time trade-off. Like, something that can deliver most of the fun in not much of the time is almost always a good trade-off. Um, and this applies way beyond uh, role-playing games. Like, um, if you look at uh, Twilight Struggle and... Um, some some number of days the thirteen days thirteen days um, which is by no means the same game but gives you some of those same feelings with oh you don't like I so go ahead and finish and then okay. I'll, I'll I'll give you my I, talk okay uh, I probably by going to board games made a, that one especially bad point to start on <laughs> but also thinking of things like uh, I I've, I've recently been playing the um, Mario versus Rabbids Mario whatever the the oh, Mario yeah. XCOM Rabbids game uh, which is I'm a huge XCOM fan but getting time to play through XCOM is is tough mm -hmm. whereas uh, Rabbids simplifies so many elements of that and takes away all these things that add a ton of complexity that I thought were important uh, and instead simplifies them way, way, way down. Yeah. And it's still, it, it's not quite as good as XCOM for the things that I'm looking for, but it's close enough and it requires so much less time that it's a good trade-off. Like, I will happily just jump through missions, even though they're linear, even though I don't have as much of a, you know, go here and do whatever, order whatever things. I don't have as much base development. My weapon choices aren't as interesting. There's not really research, per se. Uh, there's no permanent death. Um, your hit chances are either 0, 50, or 100. Like, all this stuff should make the game so bad based on the things that I think I like. But I love it. It, it, it takes so much less time for... 75 to 90 percent of the fun that I like. Um, someday I need to like clarify these numbers because there's totally like a good saying there somewhere, and I always <laughs> just float the numbers around. But yeah, if if you can save a lot of time and only chop off a little bit of the fun, you you've done great both as, um, in your like practice of play. Um, you know, if you're even if the game doesn't explicitly call it out, if you start kind of doing the zoom in, zoom out, fast forward over the tavern scenes or whatever like if that saves you time and sure you miss like the fun little exchange that would have happened there but you just saved all this time it's probably worth it for you yeah. um yeah so the twilight struggle okay the twilight struggle thing so uh there's a series of games right twilight struggle being the two to four hour cold war game depending on how amazing the ussr is playing and how quickly you generally play games 
uh, 13 days, mm-hmm. which was, let's make Twilight Struggle shorter, uh, 13 minutes, oh, no. which is a micro game of 13 days, and then recently released Iron Curtain. Uh, the 13s and Iron Curtain are same designer, uh, and I'm hearing tentative good things about Iron Curtain, so I might give it a shot. But what 13 Days did to reduce the time is it reduced the scope and added a bunch of randomness. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I really like about Twilight Struggle is the tension that that comes out of this idea that both of us need to get 50 things done and we can only do 10, and I don't know what 10 you want to do. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that Africa is going to be really important this turn, but it's not in my hand. But you're playing a whole lot there, so maybe it's... Whereas, whereas 13 Days kind of brings a whole bunch of that back into... Well, I, I mean, I really have no idea, and, you know, because you just don't have enough time for it to come out. Yes. Uh, and so I believe Iron Curtain adds reduces that randomness and adds a lot more of the tension that I like back in, and mm-hmm. it's still quick. Um, and if you can play Twilight Struggle in half an hour and still get most of all that tension out of it, exactly, I am super in. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, 13 days, okay, so I have much less experience with 13 days, and I probably shouldn't have led with board games there. Uh, that, that was my mistake. But yeah, any of these... Um, <laughs> no, 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 it's a, great, it's a great thing. Like, the problem with board games for me is that, you know, every year, and uh, more often if I can manage it, uh, I will take an entire week and get day-long games played, because yeah. those are some of my favorite games. So when are we doing uh, Here I Stand, or... Here I Stand uh, 500th Anniversary is happening... I hope to get it happening uh, either in November or December, actually, because I can't wait to get it played okay. again. And we are going to play tournament scenario. Speaking of time, I'm going to keep this so on topic. Uh, Here I Stand is is technically like 10 turns long. Yeah. Uh, but each turn is really uh, something like 30 kind of card plays. Yeah. So really you're playing like 300 turns, uh, which is which makes it make sense that you're going to play for eight hours, right? Um, but there's a... If you play the full 10 turns, you're also playing the first three, which are the most dangerous turns to go wrong. Oh, yeah. As, uh, as, our, as our Pope knows very well. Yeah. Uh, and if, so, if those <laughs> Protestants get off to an early start, they're, they're like rabbits. Like, there's no stopping them. There's just a bunch of insanity at the beginning. And so, and so one of the ways that I do like to play is there's a tournament scenario which skips the early chaos and just drops you in where everybody made the optimal initial moves and randomness was basically even and now you all have approximately the same stuff. Yeah. And this also, war games are funny, war games are very aware of how long you have to play them mm-hmm. and so Here I Stand has this entire section of the playbook that's like, look, uh, yeah, they've got playbooks too. Look, you've <laughs> got, we know that you only have maybe four hours to play if you're at turn four or past it, at the end of any turn, you can stop and the VPs will be accurate. Mm-hmm. But before turn four, there's all this insanity going on. And so you just really have no idea, you know, what actually these things are rated. So, so there's a way to play Here I Stand where you cut out the first three turns and just set it up as normal. And then you can basically end on any turn mm-hmm. and consider it to be an accurate playthrough. But it takes way less time. So I want to do that. There's also the... High Frontier. Oh, yeah. And 
Something that I found that I think is hilarious is there's a very, very quick playing game called uh, Around the World in 80 Days, mm -hmm. uh, which is based on actually the first winner of the Spiel des Jahres, Deep Cut. Uh, Around the World in 80 Days is you pay money to go forward, but it's got a, uh, an accelerating cost for every mm -hmm. additional space you want to go. I think it's triangular. Um, but the only way to get money is to go backward to a coin spot, and you get 10 money per space you go backward. Okay. And so it's this weird kind of, how, many tr how, many, how much money can I spend and still be able to get some money, and then what spaces do I need to land on? And I believe that the stuff that I really like about High Frontier, a lot of it is covered by 80 days. Because oh. the stuff that I really like about High Frontier is, well, I'm going to make this minimal plan, and then I'm going to run out to space, and then something horrible is going to go wrong because I mathed wrong, and then I'm going to have to figure out how to solve all that problem. But High Frontier takes 15 hours to play, and 80 days takes... 45 minutes. Now, I would still love to play High Frontier. I still think High Frontier is a great game. But if I'm going to tell somebody about this amazing thing, I would like to play 80 Days with them first and be like, do you like this feeling? Because this feeling times a million is what you get in High Frontier with the space theme. Oh, now it's my chance to, to totally nope that. Because do it. like, uh, So uh, we've played High Frontier. Yep. We, we did play a briefer scenario. but like, <laughs> We played the first 10% of the game. Yeah, but somehow we accelerated really fast. Yeah, anyway, it does accelerate very um, fast. We we played High Frontier and I loved it. Mm -hmm. And your description of eighty days, I could care less about. That sounds totally. horrible to me. <laughs> like doing the math on how far forward I and then how many moves back and like that sounds awful. But High Frontier, I loved and would play again anytime. So like there. What was the part that you really liked about High Frontier, though? I think part of it is like the the theme and the complexity of the decisions. Like there were. Uh, so your your the game board is laying out all of these possible transitions between points in space that are based on like the the energy Actually, cost of yeah. getting there with things like uh, Lagrange points where you can basically stay neutral relative to everything else basically uh, you know it's all multi body problems in space so like crazy stuff but simplified down into this amazing map but that means that there's all these weird transitions and they're uh, you know finding optimal paths through it is by no means easy and at least when we were playing you were really encouraging us like don't analysis paralysis yourself down all the way to figuring out exactly every path because you'll just get lost in the weeds. And so having that kind of permission for like, this is so complex that I don't have to optimize it all the way made, made it so much more fun for me. Whereas 80 days sounds simple enough that it sounds like I should optimize it all the way, mm -hmm. which is, is uh, actually bothers me. Like totally. I'm, I'm the kind of like, I love to do the, the high level optimizations and find the one crazy trick kind of thing, but the low level, like save you the one coin by doing it in this order stuff. It, it gets too in the weeds for me for, yeah. for fun. And that's perfectly reasonable. And I, I think that that comes down to this kind of compromise problem, uh, which, uh, what was it? There was, a, there was a saying about, like, Excel. Uh, everybody uses only, like, 10% of this system, but yep. they all use a different 10%. And so just be aware, I mean, we've talked about this before, you're going to cut out a part to make it more efficient. Somebody's not going to like that you cut out that part, but that might be okay. Yeah, I've I've heard the same stuff about uh, baby stuff. Actually, like somebody gave me that advice when I was having uh, or when we were expecting, and like the 
the feed, uh, the feedback was like, uh, I was asking people, you know, what, what kind of stuff do you need for a kid or whatever? And somebody was like, well, you're going to get tons of stuff. Some of it is going to be like 10% of it is going to be really critical to your, your flow of having a kid. The rest of it's going to be junk, but I can't tell you which that 10% is. Totally. Um, and I've seen that exact thing across other parents, and like it was certainly true for us that things that other people were like, this is the best thing ever. We couldn't have parented out without it. Like, like we, we never took it out of the packaging, and then stuff that other people didn't even mention was was huge for us. Uh, yeah, anyway. Um, and, and I think there's also different cutoff points here. You know, I was kind of making up my numbers like 10%, 90%, or whatever. But part of it is what, what parts of a game are, are fun for you. Like, there are certainly people who, the dungeon world, like trim down some of the the detail and get it rolling faster, is actually the wrong thing. Like they they really need the at least ninety nine percent of true D anD D to feel like they're getting all the stuff they like, which is fine. But like that, it's back to that you know different ways of playing and different resources as well. Like for me at this point, time is such a resource that like the the time trade off is. I, I can take that fun way down if it means I'll actually get to play the game. Yeah, um, one of the things I like to cut when I play a Dungeon World uh, con game is I just don't bother doing full character creation at the mm-hmm. beginning. We just play an initial scene. I say, okay, who wants to be what kind of class? Because almost everybody's played D&D before. Yeah. Uh, and then I hand them the thing. I say, take a quick look at this stuff, but don't bother checking anything, and we'll just immediately play. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... There's a lot of people who really like character creation and really like just kind of digging into, well, what does this bond mean? And let's just kind of talk about that for a while. And, oh, man, I've got a, a cool weapon that's only mine. Well, yeah. let's just talk about that for a while. And I, I actually feel like bonds are pretty important. This is something that every time I've played Torchbearer I've missed is uh, Torchbearer is great for setting up your character with an interesting background, mm-hmm. but offers very little on why your characters are together, which for me is actually always kind of the bigger point. Like, I, I tend to design characters more around how I think they're going to be in play than some background that I want to hit. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I, I have this idea, and then I can I can create a background. Sure, I like it. But the thing that I really want is, okay, this is how I'm going to play off of you and everything. So, like, the Torchbearer game that we just did, uh, we actually had a, a diversity of kinds of backgrounds. Sean Nittner, one of the other players, very much plays in the, like, he has a detailed background that ties into the setting history and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And my character is basically a one-off joke on um, Home Alone and the character Orin from Parks and Recreation um, mashed together as a wizard. It's wonderful. It's totally my thing. But like my, I have like my entire connection to the setting is I'm from some wizard school and everybody else went off on a uh, cross planner field trip and forgot about me because nobody <laughs> likes me. Uh, and so now I'm off adventuring with these guys. Mm-hmm. Where And like tying that together with like this really detailed like rebellion story and being imprisoned and everything. Yeah. Uh, I, I look towards things that save time in that time together um, which is interesting that like you can do a game without that I think it's partially that you do very strong initial scenarios like you are in the situation whatever figure out how you know each other but you're in the situation and you can go from there yeah the, when I can uh, like a lot of the games that I run we have uh, a kind of a long initial discussion on slack or on chat or something and so I go into the game knowing what everybody kind of wants. Yeah. And when you already know that, you can make a situation that's, oh, everybody's already interested in this anyways, so it's no big deal. Con games, I tend to get that when I'm asking people what characters they want to play. Yep. So like I say, okay, here's some stuff. And somebody's like, oh, man, I want to play like Aragorn. And I'm like, okay, I've got you. <laughs> and, you know, just talk about this kind of thing really quick. 
and then immediately jump. But for people that have never played role-playing games before, I ask them what a sweet movie opening would be. Oh, And then nice. I drop them into that. Yeah. Uh, which also means that they have kind of a cultural touchstone. Yep. They're like, oh, I want to be this character from that movie. And then, cool, here's a sheet. And Dungeon World, this is one of my favorite things about Dungeon World uh, that I, I wish I had actually emphasized more. Um, the it So a conversation we had early on, um, something that I had heard... I think I've heard it attributed to Jason Morningstar, but like, um, if you don't give people strong touchstones, they just kind of go with whatever pop culture they know. Mm -hmm. um, and Dungeon World uh, was kind of the, okay, wait, let's just go with whatever pop culture, let's explicitly be the pop culture cesspool. Like, mm -hmm. we're not going to have a super strong touchstone to override that. We're going to say, oh no, like, you, you know what a fantasy adventure looks like? Just throw that all in there with some, like, rush and, uh, like, whatever else. Um... Futurama and and Adventure Time, like just mash it all together, mm -hmm. um, and so that works really well with that movie opening, and that's the kind of thing. Uh, going back several discussions to the um, things that like are great soft skills that aren't in the book, that almost is something that I would want to add to the Dungeon World book. Like here, if you are playing a quick game, open with ask you know ask somebody a cool scene from a book or movie and and start with an, uh, a riff on that. Mm -hmm. um, that actually uh, also tying into Monster Hearts since we've discussed that. Um, I have my favorite tip for at least Monster Hearts 1 to start the game. Um, so Monster Hearts teenage monsters in high school um, and you have a seating chart and everything. The best way I've found to start that game is uh, everybody's sitting in homeroom and um, the teacher asked them to get into groups for the big assignment for whatever topic that is. <laughs> like, we, we did history, but it could be biology or physics, whatever. Like, and then ask everybody who they look at first. Mm -hmm. And that right there already gets you all of these like dramas, in, because the, the characters have been set up such that they already have like ties to each other. Mm -hmm. And it's that great moment where everybody's going to do something that somewhat exposes something of what they think. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be somewhat uneven because that's how the game is set up. But by putting them in, like it, it's that wonderful high school like tiny choice that everybody's going to be talking about in the hallway or whatever, like being excluded from the group or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. And that's the kind of advice that, um, I mean, I don't want to tell Avery how to design their game because uh, it doesn't need to be there, but that's like, if, if I were to do Monster Hearts 3, I would write that into the book. Framing, um, is, framing is so, so important. Okay, so we, we have digressed quite a bit, oh, all, on, all riffing on time, but we should go back to our, our recap. Oh, are we going to spend too much time? Is that what's going on here? Oh yeah, uh, like we said, time limits are great. Uh, so my three blades in the dark... Uh, microscope, microscope Explorer specifically um, because of all the kind of stuff it did and then Inheritance oh my goodness and and I wasn't very good and didn't answer with specific games but I did uh, Time is the Enemy like some of the uh, Torchbearer like Torch or Blades in the Dark um, Time is Your Friend like this puppet game that I will find a name for or like uh, playing a game with a, a set schedule um, mm -hmm. or even playing Monster Hearts with a set number of uh, well a, a constrained number of sessions uh, before your season ends. Um, and then time is a compromise, both in kind of the, the micro, you know, you, you fail at something so it takes more time and that creates interesting outcomes because time matters. That's it for our 28th question. It's about time. Another question is Adam Blinkensop and Sage Latore. You can find us on Twitter at AQ Podcast or by searching for another question on Google Plus or Facebook. Our website, anotherquestion.com, has all our old episodes, plus links to all the games we mentioned in each episode and other bonus material. If you'd like to support us, you can send us a question, leave us a review on iTunes, or share this episode. Thanks.